This program is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. So you, you know you're in for an extraordinary experience. Uh, and uh, I will just say a few brief words to uh, remind those who don't know James Carroll the extraordinary, about the extraordinary achievements of his career. He is the author of uh, 16 books. They include uh, a wide range of works of fiction. Uh, they include his work as a historian, uh, such works as Constantine's Sword and uh, The House of War, A History of the Pentagon. Uh, he's a writer of memoir. He won the National Book Award for his book called An American Requiem, a memoir about his relations with his father during the Vietnam War. He is a distinguished journalist who writes for the Boston Globe and has written for many years. He's taking a bit of a leave right now, those of you who miss his column, but he plans to come back. Uh, he's also a filmmaker, and many of you uh, have seen in this very space uh, his film, Constantine's Sword. Others might have seen it in theaters uh, based on his, his book of, uh, about uh, uh, Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, so, uh, and uh, he's also, uh, we're proud to say, a member of the Suffolk community, a permanent member. He's a distinguished scholar in residence, hopefully for forever, while he is here. Um, I will say this, I know him for a number of years now, and uh, uh, he's a man of great in integrity uh, and a very skilled speaker and writer, and the the engine which informs all his work, which is sort of at the core and gives energy to all his work, is his religious beliefs. Sometimes they come out in an overt and direct way, sometimes it's less direct, but in everything I've read of his, in every talk that he's ever given, his being a Catholic has been central to what it's all about. And so uh, today we're here to celebrate the publication of his new book called Practicing Catholic. There are copies of that book out in the lobby and he will end few minutes early, so those of you who want to buy the book, you will be glad to sign copies. Other books that he's written are also on display outside, uh, so you can get keep him busy with his signature uh, for a long time. Uh, and today he's going to talk specifically about one aspect, which was sort of is rooted in his book, uh, about the, the problem of science versus religion. Uh, many of you are here because your professors have recommended this or you have various assignments. Those, some come from the outside the university. Many of you I see are professors who know the work of James Carroll already. Uh, it's our privilege and honor to have him speak with us today. James Carroll. Well, geez, thank you very much, folks, and Ken, thank you so much, and what a pleasure to, uh, on the occasion of the publication of this book of mine, uh, begin its introduction to the world uh, right here at home with you. Um, I'm really glad to be doing that. I didn't actually imagine um, that Ken would, in honoring me the way you did, Ken, uh, lift up my religious core as the driving engine of my work. I've actually never heard that said about me. And my first reaction uh, is to be a little embarrassed, like I'm caught out or something. Uh, but that just reflects my lifelong ambition to be a truly secular person, which I haven't achieved yet. Um, it reminds me of something George Orwell said about novel writing. I 
am a novelist. Uh, think of novel writing as my day job. Uh, but um, Orwell said uh, something to the effect, the novel is a Protestant art form requiring free play of the mind. No Catholics have been any good as novelists. <laughs> or if they have, they were bad Catholics. <laughs> I uh, feel a little awkward about this talk, to tell you the truth. And I want to begin by acknowledging the awkwardness I feel. I appreciate your being here. I appreciate the professors who've recommended this lecture to their classes. The awkwardness I feel has to do with the awkwardness I think perhaps a lot of people, maybe all of us feel, about um, the private lives of our religion. Uh, Suffolk is a, a non-denominational secular university, uh, and we're here as part of a liberal arts college that has no religious commitment defining it. Uh, that wouldn't be true if we were at Boston College, say, or any of the other denominationally defined universities one can think of. But that's not true of Suffolk. And Suffolk, I would say, like our nation itself, has a commitment to respect the freedom of conscience of all of the members of the community. And one of the ways we do that is by not in any way advancing the, religious, the narrow religious agenda of any sect or denomination. So students at Suffolk and the Suffolk community have a right, even as they engage in free inquiry in the culture and history of our civilization, have a right to take for granted that they are never going to be proselytized in this university, by, certainly not by any official of it, uh, and that they're not going to be um, challenged in some coercive way about their own deep-held beliefs. So that's one of the tenets of our community. Um, and that's part of what makes me a little uneasy this afternoon. Because I am talking about a book called Practicing Catholic. Well, I'm not talking about that book. I have determined to make a presentation that goes to a fundamental question that we all have in common. So you can relax if you're wondering whether I'm going to pitch the Catholic Church to you, or if on the other side, if you know my work, I'm going to bash the Catholic Church to you. Uh, that's not my agenda at all. Actually, my agenda isn't about the Catholic Church, although the book I'm coming out of happens to be. No, I want to talk about the prior questions that give rise in human beings to what I would call, in broad terms, the impulse to give expression to the inexpressible. That, that's my subject. And one of the things I take for granted is that both science and religion are enterprises that each in their very different ways are attempting to give expression to what's inexpressible. I want to acknowledge that even though this book about being a certain kind of Catholic uh, isn't um, of Suffolk, I want to acknowledge that so much of what I've written in this book has benefited from my experiences with you. And I want to acknowledge my debt to you, some of you in very particular ways, classes I've been a part of, where I've discussed 
and considered questions that I've had to pursue in coming to some focus and understanding of my own inner life as a believing person. Some of you may remember classes where I've been part of conversations about the, uh, in Kuhn's term, shift of the paradigm that takes place when Copernicus and Galileo come on the scene. Uh, others of you in literature classes may remember our consideration of Allen Ginsberg's Howl, which came just at a point when I was in a, a kind of a remembering of my own first encounter with that work and the importance of it and the, and the remembering that I did with you about the meaning of Allen Ginsberg's Howl. You know that great um, outrageous controversial poem published in the middle 1950s? I first read it in the early 1960s. The first line, unforgettable, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. Howl. It immediately put me in mind of that unbelievable moment in King Lear where, you know, the most uh, poignant stage direction in all of drama, King Lear, enter, enter King Lear, carrying Cordelia. And then King Lear goes, howl, 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 howl. And it was when I read Ginsburg as a young man trying to understand who I was, the staggering thing that hit me was that Ginsburg said howl. He showed how howl, that kind of gut protest against the human condition, the anxiety we feel to be alive on this earth, bleeds over for him into the word holy. And in, in the end of, of the poem, Howl, which people were offended by, he, he stops saying Howl and says, Holy, the world is holy, the soul is holy, the skin is holy, the nose is holy, the tongue and cock and hand and asshole, holy. Everything is holy. But at Suffolk, we're not supposed to talk like that, actually. And I'm not thinking of the word asshole. No, the really dangerous word is, is holy. Religion is prof, uh, private. We keep it separate. And what I realized in preparing these remarks is that this feeling of awkwardness about raising this subject is the clue to our problem because we have it in our minds that this part of our experience in life, religion, is separate. It's over here. The separation, as we say, of church and state. We saw that, in, I don't know how many of you watched the news conference with Barack Obama the other night. But there came a point when he was asked a question about his recent program on stem cell research. And the reporter, and he answered the question by defending his new policy based on the fact that the consensus of science justifies what he decided. And the reporter followed up by saying, is the consensus of science the only thing you take into account when you make a decision about stem cell research? And Obama properly said, no, it isn't. But it was very clear that he didn't have the language. And I would say in that forum, he didn't really have the space to say what else he has to take into account in dealing with such a subject. 
No, there's the consensus of science, and then there's paying attention to another realm, the language for which has been corrupted in our time, and we hardly know how to speak of it. I'm talking about a great divide that is not just in the world, but it's in our imaginations. It's the divide between church and state, that puts it politically. It's the divide between private and public. It's the divide between religion and science, yes. It's the divide, actually, between heaven and earth, between life and afterlife, between thinking and praying, between the supernatural and the natural, between, well, God and man, between the self and the world. And this divide is the condition that makes us howl. Because what we're afraid of, if we're on the wrong side of the divide, is that we find ourselves there alone, the self against the community. This division is the modern dilemma. In this book, I've actually tried to trace my own journey through the end of that division in my own life, how I found it possible to discover the connection between the howl and the holy. For me, the only heaven that matters is earth. And this life is the life of what I call, in my tradition, the kingdom of God. So the subtitle of this lecture, in two parts, can a scientist believe? Can a religious person think critically? Of course, you're not surprised to know that my answer to both questions is yes. But if you really seriously answer both of those questions yes, you do it by demolishing the divide between science and religion, which is easier said than done. My assumption is that the questions that we find so hard to articulate with each other is that this subject, however we define it, and I'm already moving away from the traditional definitions when I say this life is the only life, this subject matters to every human person. And actually what's at stake in our ability to think in a creative and fresh way about this division is nothing less than the future of humanity. Because the victory of fundamentalist religion, which is anti-rational, will kill thought. And there are billions of people today in this planet tempted to fundamentalist religions of various kinds. And if they become defined by them, that will be the end of thinking, which will be a catastrophe for the future of our species. And at the same time, you know, the problem isn't only with those religious nutcases. At the same time, we have a tradition of science that is walled off from ethical self-criticism, from the language of morality, the consensus of science that has no capacity to speak of what is not able to be demonstrated or tested 
And yet when it comes to the most important decisions facing us as a species, end of life, beginning of life, the power to destroy the human civilization, those questions cannot be dealt with, certainly not resolved, without attention to the very things that can never be demonstrated or tested or proven in a laboratory. So science is on the threshold of catastrophe, and so is religion, which puts us all there. So we need to be able to think about these questions, which is, of course, what we're doing here at this university, isn't it? Whether we're science majors or humanities majors, across the board of the liberal arts. It might help to just cast our mind back a little bit and learn from people who've gone before us instead of having kind of the contemporary spirit of condescension as if we necessarily are an improvement on the experience of those who've gone before. That isn't our assumption in the university, I know, but it's a temptation always to think this. That's why we use that word primitive to discuss the first impulses and intuitions that human beings had long ago. And primitive first, from your Latin, is a derogatory word in most of the ways we use it. The primitive experience that our ancestors had was that this world points to something beyond it. In Genesis, the word the author used was image. Human beings are created in the image of God, suggesting that the faculty that's relevant for our consideration is the imagination, the faculty in human beings that considers through images. I love to remember with my species, the movement that our ancestors made from being Homo erectus, the upright walker, to being Homo sapiens, the upright walker who knows. And that's how we define ourselves. But we don't give ourselves enough credit because we aren't Homo sapiens. You know what we are? We're Homo sapiens sapiens. We are the upright walkers who know that we know. Our dogs know. I mean, my dog knows. Your dog knows, right? Knows a lot. But as far as we can tell, what your dog doesn't know is that it knows. We know that. And that's what we call self-knowledge. Homo sapiens sapiens. But that's not all we are. I would argue, and this is where we get into a kind of netherworld of imprecise language. Well, that's the best place to be, isn't it? Imprecision is a flaw only in a narrowly mechanistic and rigidly scientific world. Imprecision is the métier of poetry. Am I right? Words that mean more than one thing, that suggest, suggest, associate, Homo sapiens, sapiens, the creature that knows that it knows, and the knowing of the knowledge itself is an opening to something else. So I would suggest that we think of ourselves, bear with me, as Homo sapiens, sapiens, sapiens. We know that we know, 
And knowing that we know inevitably opens us to another realm of knowing. I say to the realm of experiencing ourselves as known, as known. And it's out of that experience, ineffable, hard to express, that the determination to express comes. This is the home of art. This is what moved those people in the caves 35,000 years ago. Lascaux and various other sites in France and in Africa and the Middle East. 35, 45, 50,000 years ago, our ancestors making images on the walls of caves, expressing their self-knowledge and, and the impulse that it pushes them to another world. And it's not an accident, in my view, that that expression, like the primitive expressions of music and of writing, which is only three or 4,000 years, 4, years ago or so, maybe 5,000 years ago, only a minute ago, that writing and music and painting and image making of all kinds is not an accident that it was all in the beginning what we would call religious. People trying to express what is inexpressible. And that's the first religious experience. And there is a tragedy built into the human condition that we are born with a constitutional tendency to make more of what we have than we should. So we, what we have done as human beings again and again and again is take the image of the inexpressible and declare that the image itself is the inexpressible thing. We have made an image and then we have bowed down before it and worshipped it. The Bible calls this idolatry, you know that. We are all born with an impulse to do that. We don't do it religiously so much in our country, but we're living through a crisis of faith today that is facing us with the fact that we have done it financially. The great collapse of what in the 1950s was called uh, the almighty dollar. It's a religious experience we're going through today. Something very primitive the discovery that all that we said was valuable has nowhere near the value we thought it had. We have a traditional cult in the religious world. I speak now as a religious person. And our cult is to mistake our cult for God. We imagine the unimaginable and then say, we don't have to imagine anymore, this is it. We forget the most important thing about whatever it is we mean by God, which is that there is no saying what we mean by God. The only thing we know for sure about God is that God is unknowable. Now, there are not many religious people who speak this way today, but this is what it meant when in the seventh century before the Common Era, when the Hebrews came back from exile in Babylonia to rebuild the temple, they rebuilt the temple 
and they rebuilt the Holy of Holies, but now with a difference. You know what's inside the Holy of Holies of the temple, don't you? In the Holy of Holies of the temple, you know what's in there, don't you? Nothing. Nothing. The high priest goes in there only one day a year. And there is nothing there. When Muhammad sparked to the idea of the oneness of God, what did he do at the Kaaba, that great black cube in Mecca, which is an ancient Arab holy place? What did he do? He, took, he required the removal of all of the images and said that Allah is not to be represented by an image because God is greater than any image we can have of God. Now, I'm trying to suggest that there is something deeply human at work in this frustrating but inevitable impulse to express what is inexpressible. And I'm also observing that when this impulse gets enshrined in an institution called religion, inevitably something goes wrong. We live in a culture and a world, a time, that was born in a period when the wrongness of religion became infernal madness. Infernal madness. This is the beginning of what we recognize as the conflict between science and religion. I'm talking about the dates, and now let's do a little history together. Between 1492, aha, you know that one, and 1700. And what happened between 1492 and 1700 gave us uh, the problem we have that I'm trying to put into words here, and that I acknowledge cannot be put into words. You know what happened in 1492. And actually, I'm not thinking of Christopher Columbus. Well, yes, I am, but not only him. The, uh, who's to say what's more historic or more consequential? But for me, the far more emblematic event of 1492 was the, the way in which Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand expelled Muslims and Jews from the Iberian Peninsula, thereby declaring that from then on, their civilization, which through the Holy Roman Empire would soon attempt to be the entire civilization of Europe as the Habsburgs moved north, their civilization would be divide, defined by one religion that had all the truth that was needed. This religion knew who God was. There was no other nuancing, no other information, no other impulses, no other experience. No other human uh, wisdom uh, required or wanted. One kingdom, one God. That's 1492. And look what happened in quick succession. In 1517, just a minute later, Martin Luther said, no, one religion, one God here. And the next thing you know, there's a savage religious war through the continent of Europe in the heart of Western civilization that lasted for 200 years. 
and that, was, that is almost gone, really, from the Western memory. We're aware of it in principle, but not in any real way, because it was, it was 20th century style murder and violence without 20th century technology. And the murders that were committed across the European continent, Protestant Catholic wars in Germany in the mid 16th century, the Thirty Years' War in the mid 17th century, killing up to maybe a third of the population of Germany and France, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, tens of thousands of Protestants slaughtered in France across the country, the English Civil War that gave us the first English settlers to the United States of America who come here as in reaction to the religious wars of the continent and immediately establish a religious war of the New World against the savages that are found here because that's the other thing that happens in 1492. It actually began to happen in 1450-something. Remember Prince Henry the Navigator from high school? Maybe it's Suffolk, somebody still studies Prince Henry the Navigator. I just remember in high school loving that name, Prince Henry the Navigator. I mean, I was a child of World War II, so I saw him sitting next to the pilot in a B-29 bomber, you know. Prince Henry the Navigator. Prince Henry the Navigator was the person who oversaw the first movement of European colonists to Africa, the beginning of European colonialism, which was what? It was the movement out of this Ferdinand Isabella impulse, one religion, one political realm, the colonial impulse defining the other not as Jews, which is the way the West had defined the other to that point, but as savages. And it's that definition of the other that comes to the new world and that is immediately a characteristic of the pilgrim settlers here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And you remember Roger Williams protested that rigid definition of religion. There's something wrong with this religion. You people have made a god of this uh, religion itself. This isn't who God is. Roger Williams in the tradition of Baruch Spinoza who had the temerity to say that God isn't this figure up there in heaven watching us like a great-grandfather with the beard. And he was derided for being an atheist. Spinoza's telling us, no, look around. Somehow, I, I don't tell you how, somehow this whole world experience that we're having together, this is divine. And whoever the creator is, this, the creator is here, this is it. And Spinoza is an atheist. And Roger Williams is expelled as a heretic from Massachusetts, which gives us Rhode Island. How dare we feel smugly superior to Rhode Island? Gives us Brown University, a Baptist university. You see what's going on here? A kind of grappling with the limits of religious expression. And at the same time, these massive attacks in Europe and America, too, on women. The witch madness. The madness of religion turned against women. The madness of religion turned against Africans. The madness of religion turned against Jews. The madness of religion turned against women. The madness of religion turned against fellow religionists, Protestants and Catholics. This is 1492 to 1700. And look what else was happening at the same exact time. Gloriously, the age, as we say, of reason 
Where did the age of reason come from? It came from a reaction to all of this. There's something missing from this expression. And there were human beings, even in that period, who determined to find another way to express what can't be expressed, the ineffable, the unspeakable. And they began to apply in disciplined ways the process of the mind. So we know their names. You study them. Copernicus. Did you ever notice his dates? 1473. So he's 19 years old in 1492. Interesting, eh? 1473 to 1543. And you know Copernicus, who suddenly, well, not suddenly probably, but has this insight that we live in a heliocentric universe. The Earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. And this is the beginning of science. When you study the history of science, often this is marked as the beginning. And when you consider whether religion and science are at war with each other, have in mind that Copernicus was a Catholic priest. He was the dean of the cathedral in Krakow, Poland, a position that would be occupied years later by a fellow of the name of Karol Wojtyla, who you remember as Pope John Paul II. Copernicus comes right out of the tradition of religion. And he understands there's something missing in what we've been given. And the idea that the earth is the center of everything and that God is up there watching the earth and that the pinnacle of all the cosmos is the earth and that the pinnacle of the earth is the human person and that it's all here for me is essential to that primitive worldview. And Copernicus said, no, no. Maybe there is no center. Whoa. What is the human person if we're just on one insignificant planet in a small insignificant galaxy on the corner of an, I mean in a small insignificant solar system on the corner of a small insignificant galaxy in a, that is going to last for in the scale of Time, only a few seconds. What is the human person, or what is the, or as the psalmist said, what is man that thou should have him in mind? We are nobody, comes from Copernicus. How, well, no, we actually aren't nobody, because why? We are nobody who knows we're nobody. That sets us apart from all the other nobodies. No, really. There are nobodies all over the cosmos. But we are the nobodies who know it. And if that isn't magnificent in another way, I mean, did Copernicus give us an even more glorious understanding of who we are? And you know what happens. Kepler, Johannes Kepler, his dates, 1571 to 1630, so his last year is right in the thick of the Thirty Years' War, the savage religious war. He supports Copernicus with mathematics. And of course, the master, Galileo Galilei, whose dates are 1564 to 1642. He's, you know, 15, 16 years old when the Spanish Armada 
fails off the coast of England, the religious war between Catholics and Protestants. If the Spanish Armada had been successful, for one thing, we'd be having this lecture in Spanish today. And maybe we'd all be practicing Catholics. But it was the middle of a religious war that Galileo Galilei does his speculation. But it isn't, in his case, just speculation, because in 1612, you know, he looks through a telescope of his own improvement and establishes by his eyes the truth of what Copernicus theorized about. And it's at that point that religion panicked because the image of God was more important to us than the possibility that we don't know as much about God as we thought. And so the church said no to Galileo. The Christian world generally and there begins the contest. And the more certain of its method, the method institutionalized by Isaac Newton, 1642, so he's born the year Galileo dies. See how this is happening? It's like a, it's like a relay race. They're passing the baton to each other. Isaac Newton is born in 1642 and lives to 1727. And with Newton, we get the, here's the great breakthrough. You get the, the discovery of the method, experimentation, deduction, and the ability to confirm through another ex experiment is the core of truth, including, alas, the big mistake, because out of this impulse comes the idea that only things that can be measured, demonstrated, and proven can be true which leaves out the whole realm of what I'm talking about here, the inexpressible, which is by definition unable to be measured, demonstrated, or proven. The world, as we is, might say, of myth can no longer be a conveyor of truth. Big mistake. This is the obliteration of at least the third, if not the second, sapiens. Homo sapiens, 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 dropping back to being homo sapiens, sapiens, and maybe even only homo sapiens. Because how do I prove that I know myself? Which brings us to, so Newton dies in 1727. His contemporary, Rene Descartes, 1569 to 1650, I think, therefore I am. There's no proving my own existence that I can think it proves it. Screw you. Which is how the world of religion heard it. But of course, the dualism, uh, dualism I'm tracking is understood to have really taken form here. Cartesian dualism. I over against you. The self as the church heard it, over against doctrine. And it is out of this insight that a new politics takes form, a glorious new politics, we would say. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. No proof needed. Self-evident. Out of the scientific revolution comes democratic liberalism, a breakthrough. But at a terrible price, because Jefferson enshrines the, the gulf embodied in what he calls the wall of separation 
between church and state, between religion and thought, between religion and criticism. Have you ever noticed something weird? The most finely educated people in the United States of America today who are very sophisticated when it comes to earth science, global warming, the financial catastrophe, uh, politics, geopolitics, East versus West, people who really know their stuff. Have you ever noticed something? They are illiterate when it comes to religion. I saw a poll not long ago that said that only 65% of the American people actually will admit to believing in God. But 75% of them say they believe in the literal truth of the virgin birth. Why aren't you laughing? That's funny. 65% <laughs> believe in God. 75% believe in the virgin birth. Hello? <laughs> Religious people think it's okay to be religiously ignorant. Can we see more than is before our eyes? That's the question here. And what I worry about is, as religion is properly criticized and as the corruptions of religion are properly rejected, that our capacity to deal significantly and seriously with the transcendent is also being corrupted. Especially in a time when the other realm of the transcendent, the world of art, is banalized by popular culture. Not my subject. Religion is collapsing all around us. Atheism is bigger than ever. And just as Spinoza was called an atheist, even though, in my view, he was profoundly holy, 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 so I would say much that passes for atheism today is actually good, thoughtful criticism of the shallow corruptions of defensive religion, fundamentalist religion. So speaking from within religion, I want to conclude by making a very firm statement that both science and religion are desperately in need of a reform in the way we think about these questions. That there is something crucial about the human experience of what's ineffable, and that we must maintain our commitment to always attempt to express what cannot be expressed and always understand that as soon as we've expressed it, our expression has fallen short. To put it religiously, God is greater than any idea we have of God. Certainly God is greater than any religion. And this reform is actually happening. Now, I, at the risk of speaking again out of my Catholic experience, I do want to lift up an example of how science and religion can work together. Let me just lift up the example of the Bible's texts. For thousands of years, for most of 2,000 years, people have read the Bible as the Word of God without thinking about it. In my own tradition, we weren't even allowed to read it in our own language uh, until this uh, past century. Uh, Latin uh, was the language of the sacred texts, partly because that was a way for the priests to keep control of it. So it, this, there's a fairly new thing going on among religious people. And it has barely begun in the world of Islam, but it's beginning. And that is to think critically, scientifically, about religious texts. Can we do it? 
Christians had better learn how to do it and fast because the religious texts of Christians, especially the four Gospels, have been the source of lethal murder against the Jewish people. The story of the passion and death of Jesus, which is going to be celebrated again in a couple of weeks all over the Christian world, reiterates a slander that Jesus was put to death by the Jews. The Romans were reluctant, benign figures who were manipulated and tricked into seeing him as worthy of being put to death. Pontius Pilate was a good guy. The high priests of the temple were the villains. And the Jews uttered that world historic cry, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our people and upon our children. And that blood has been upon them and upon their children. And the 20th century was the epiphany. We saw where this led. Those texts cannot be read the way they have been read for most of 2,000 years anymore. Is it possible to change that? It's been happening. I'm a Catholic. The Second Vatican Council was a meeting of all the world's bishops between 1962 and 1963, uh, 1965. And it was an exercise in the reunion of science and religion. The science of historical, critical thinking about where those texts came from. The gospel writers were not eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. The gospels were written one, two, two and a half generations later. And they tell stories that are as much theological invention as they are biographical fact. And to understand that, and to understand how they came to be written, too complicated for me to do more than indicate here now, is crucial so that we know that Jesus was not at war with his own people. And that Jesus was put to death as a Jewish resistor of Roman Empire, not as a recalcitrant dissident Jew. And at the Second Vatican Council, the bishops of the Catholic Church issued a declaration which said no more referring to the Jewish people as the murderers of Christ. That cannot be said anymore. The fathers of the council did not resolve the scientific problem of how to deal with those texts, since that slander is embedded in the texts. And the council fathers said something else about the church's relationship to the Jewish people, which was that the covenant God has made with Israel is full, complete, and permanent, which repudiated 2,000 years of teaching that Jewish religion was obsolete, outmoded. The Jews, having rejected Jesus, no longer had a reason to exist religiously, which morphed all too easily into their having no reason to exist whatsoever. And the Second Vatican Council took a scientific position on the meaning of those texts. The most profound change in Christian history in what we believe. It was Galileo come home. It was doctrine taking second place to experience. And what was the experience? It was the Holocaust. The Holocaust trumped doctrine. That's the modern flip. The Catholic Church that condemned Galileo had taken Galileo's position, affirming experience over doctrine. I say to scientists and religious people both, the word God 
should always be in a small g. The way when I was a kid, the nuns told me that was only true of the false gods. Our god was the big G. But we should do away with the big G because the word God never captures what we mean by God. It always points beyond itself. That's the first point I'm saying in conclusion. The second is human beings were put here to put the unspeakable into words. That's what we do. Always understanding that once it's in words, it's still unspeakable, which is why we never finish. Even though lectures end, it will end. Even though lectures end, the speaking never does. It's another way of saying that the journey of Homo sapiens is not a journey to nowhere. It's a journey first to Homo sapiens sapiens. It's a journey I'm suggesting to Homo sapiens sapiens. And the journey is not finished, and we can't imagine where it leads. Yet, if we get science and religion wrong, we ourselves will bring the journey to an end. We stand on the threshold of a new world. It's a glorious place to stand. You could say that the whole history of the human race has been preparing to bring every one of us here to this place today. Everything that has gone before has been preparation for this. And the problems that have been created before us by all the mistakes and the insights that have been gleaned before us by all the acts of genius, all of that has been given to us. What a responsibility, what a frightening prospect, but also what a privilege. And in my view, this precious experience itself is what points us inevitably to, what do we call it? You get to decide what you call it. That's freedom of conscience. I call it the beyond. Well, let's admit it. I call it God. But there are as many names for God as there are human persons. Especially these days, I would say, including scientists. Thank you very much. So we, we have a few minutes for conversation. I'd very, very much welcome your thoughts on these questions. As you've gathered, I feel like every one of us is equally an expert on what's being expressed and what's inexpressible. So over to you. Comments, questions? Yes.
Yes. Is there any other kind? So am I actually a Catholic by belonging to this mystical Catholic church that exists out here, but actually isn't involved with this messy, complicated, homophobic, misogynist thing over here? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. No, I'm actually, here's, here's what I would say, you know, and again, not to belabor the Catholic thing, but I would say that the Catholic experience, the Catholic community is exactly those two things together. It's in this homophobic, misogynist, uh, insecure, doctrinaire, uh, sexually neurotic, uh, racist. How many of these adjectives can I come up with? You know, this, this very narrow world is very much this world that is the custodian of this tradition, which is a glorious leap into the other world of great, great expression of the ineffable, which is why when a one of the great manifestations of the imagination comes right out of the heart of religion, whether it's the visual religion, the visual imagination of Catholicism, or the audio imagination of Protestantism. Um, no, that's what's great about it for me. Uh, and and the, the flaws of the Catholic Church, I would say, are compared, they're sort of like the flaws of America. I'm an American, I'm a Catholic. I mean, the United States of America is the most dangerous nation on the face of the earth today. And we're just, we're, we're in the, hopefully, the last stages of in unnecessary and savage wars that have come about because of our hubris. And we have been the driving energy behind uh, nuclear weapons, which still hold the future of the earth hostage. That's my America. And, you know, I was defined as a young person by the terrible mistake my nation made in Vietnam. That's my America. And yet I'm capable, you heard me do it, of celebrating the ingenious invention of the human political imagination that took place in these shores. Thank God for the coming of the pilgrims, even as I see how they immediately turned on the native peoples they found here. Thank God for Roger Williams. Thank God for, you know, de las Casas, that Spanish explorer who defended the rights of Native Americans, even while proposing that they be replaced as slaves by Africans. So, you know, it's that mixed quality of the human condition that I speak out of. Come back at me. Yes, and here's, here's, what, here's what the key is, both for my country and my religion. Self-criticism, ongoing understanding that we have to continually submit to criticism because we're constantly getting it wrong. And one of the beauties of being of the biblical tradition, I don't say this in claiming superiority over other traditions, but certainly I know in the biblical tradition, beginning with the prophets of Israel, the people of the Bible have constantly understood that they are getting it wrong and they have to, as we say, repent and be converted. 
The Roman Catholic Church in recent years has forgotten this, but it's remembering it. You may have noticed Pope Benedict lately having again and again to apologize. Hello, have you noticed this? Now, some of you may not know this, and some of you do know it from past history. Popes do not apologize, okay? This man is being forced to apologize. Why is that? That's coming right from within his own community. Hello? That is inexcusable. And he goes to Africa, and he tells people in Africa not to protect each other from HIV with safe sex and the use of condoms. How dare he? And yet, the Holy Ghost doesn't have to correct him. The people do. And the outrage of that has been made very clear by Catholics. So that's how it works for me. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. This is a, a perfect example of the conversation that we're really needing to have. If I could try to paraphrase what you said. This gentleman is saying that he's happy that science and religion are separate. Science is about fact and reality. Is that what you said? And religion is about assumption and assumptions and fear. And I would say that's, you, you've given me the perfect summary of the problem I'm addressing. You may think that that's a status quo worth protecting. I don't. I think it's a fair characterization of yours to say that religion is overwhelmingly about assumptions and fear. Uh, and, and I think it's a fair characterization of the present understanding of science that it is about fact and reality. But I'm arguing that reality is more than fact and more than what can be observed or demonstrated through the methods of science. That the world beyond our ability to test it is still real. That's my assertion. Now you can say, what's my basis for saying that? And I can't give you, via the scientific method, a justification for it. I give it to you out of my experience. I would say religion will be better when it submits to the tests that science has evolved for measuring truth. And I would say science will be better when it regularly understands its methods as inherently limited for the measuring of reality, that reality is more than can be measured. So we may disagree. We may disagree sharply, but it's a good statement of the problem I'm trying to address. Yes? Yes. Good point. Well said. Is there a student who hasn't had a chance to speak? Not that faculty aren't students, of course, but yes, go ahead. Please.
Right. 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 Well, if you're hearing in my own articulation of what can be assumed to be my Catholic beliefs, I take it as a profound compliment for you to hear it as Judaism, because we Christians generally need to be much more attuned to the Jewishness of our tradition, which is, after all, no surprise, since Jesus was not, an, as I was taught as a boy, not an Irish Catholic. <laughs> he was a Jew. And that's funny, but as you know, in the 19th and early 20th century, there was a whole propaganda in Germany about Jesus as the Aryan, which is why he was referred to as the Nazarene. When did people start calling him the Nazarene? When they wanted to de-emphasize his being a Judean or the Galilean. Why is he the, the Galilean? Well, maybe he's not quite Jewish if he's the Galilean. Um, so I, and I, am been, I have been having reference to my own tradition shortcomings and needs to be criticized. You're absolutely right to talk, talk to the genius of the Jewish religious impulse not to speak the word, the name God, and not even to spell it out. What I said about the capital G is already effectively the tradition in Judaism. Uh, but that isn't, of course, to say that Judaism doesn't have its own versions of these temptations, as we know. And um, Judaism... No, I, I think that just as... Um, Descartes' affirmation of selfhood by putting emphasis on the sacred realm of the interior consciousness of the person gives us a new ground. It's a political ground. Why is the separation of church and state necessary? Because the state exists to protect the interior consciousness of each citizen. And the only way the state can do that is by being religiously neutral. The state can have no stake in a definition of consciousness. It's the only way to guarantee the consciousness freedom. It's what we mean by freedom in this country. It's the only way it can be guaranteed. But just because one of the reasons that Roman Catholicism stood against liberal democracy was exactly out of that question by assuming that this celebration of the self was at the expense of the community. If you have this kind of elevation of the self, then you don't need the community. If you say that there are as many names for God as there are individual persons, then you don't need organized religion. And I would say no, because we don't exist as selves alone. By definition, as human beings, none of us do. We live as individuals together. E pluribus unum gets it about right. And I think that there is, in other words, out of this, uh, that, that is one of the, you can see this in tracking our ancestors again. It's when Homo sapiens replaces Homo erectus that really what we mean by authentic, the interaction, give and take of community begins to define the experience, the coming of what we call culture. And that's natural to us. It's natural 
if you are attuned to a religious impulse to want to be in organization with others. And it's important that we do, if only because that's the only way that we can actually get authentic self-criticism. If I'm David Korash, and I think I've been appointed the Messiah, and I think that the traditional rules don't apply to me, and I can exploit the children, or I can even kill them, how am I going to be checked? I'm only going to be checked if I'm in a community of people who have equal authority to say to me, no, you're wrong, and we will not let you do that. That's why the community is urgently important. It's our only source of self-criticism. The Catholic Church went wrong when the Pope declared himself outside the circle of self-criticism. It's also known as infallibility. And let me just point out to you, Pope Benedict is a one-man destruction gang when it comes to infallibility, which is what those apologies mean. So community is the problem. We all know how hard it is to live in community. But community is the solution also. Or as we Irish put it, we would rather have contention than loneliness. There's time for one more comment. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Right, right. Well, it's a wonderful question. It goes back to the old tension, you philosophers know this, between the one and the many. How are we capable of attending to the whole while being committed to the particular? And that's the tension that's built into human life. And that's reflected in my own commitment to, be, to continue my identity as an American, even though I think nationalism since the 18th century forward has been a plague on the earth. And I look forward to the evolving of international structures of order and identity. The world court, the international criminal court, certainly the United Nations. We have to organize ourselves globally now. Certainly the economy is telling us that, isn't it? We can't be hyper-nationalists as people uh, were in the 19th and 20th centuries. The earth is damned and doomed. We see this struggle going on right now over whether the European nations are going to uh, collaborate, effectively collaborate with the Obama administration in regulating finance. So these questions are, are real, and re there, but there is no being universalist. There is no being universalist. That's why I'm still an American. I actually carry a passport from Ireland, too. If I could have an Israeli passport, I would happily take it. 
If I could have a passport with the Palestinian Authority, I would happily take it. I would take passports from wherever I find my heart invested in the political future. Uh, but, but, I always, but I would always understand that I can never be all. I can't, I can't have a kind of global passport. I have to come from someplace. And I think that's built into the human condition. When it comes to this world of the unspeakable, I'm actually quite at home, partly for reasons of simple biography, because I was born here. I'm quite at home in the world of Roman Catholicism. Uh, I embody its contradictions in myself, which keeps me from feeling superior to it uh, for its contradictions. Let's just say I'll happily continue the conversation out front. The uh, Suffolk bookstore folks have kindly gotten my book. So any of you lapsed Catholics who want to uh, take a trip down memory lane with me uh, can pick up the book. But all of you, I want to really thank you so much for your welcome. And I'd like to... And, and, and my last word needs to be an acknowledgement of my debt to the whole Suffolk community for the support you've given me in uh, carrying my work forward. Thank you, thank you, thank you.